G'day there and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Todd Fraser. Today I'll be speaking with Dr. Joseph Nates about his article, Intensive Care Unit Admission, Discharge and Triage Guidelines, a framework to enhance clinical operations, development of institutional policies and further research, published in Critical Care Medicine. Joseph is the Professor, Deputy Chair and Intensive Care Medical Director of the Department of Critical Care, Division of Anesthesiology and Critical Care at the University of Texas MD Armstrong Cancer Centre in Houston, Texas. Joseph, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Joseph, critical care is an incredibly resource-intensive service to provide, and it's estimated that it costs the U.S. somewhere in excess of $250 billion a year to keep uh, the service running. So the need for these guidelines is clear. But the guidelines have been in existence for about 15 or 16 years now, haven't they? So what's led to this current revision? Yeah, Yeah. so the American College of Critical Care Medicine has a committee called the Guidelines Committee, and they took the decision to review the uh, literature after almost two decades since the initial publication, thousands of related stories, uh, changes in the profession and in the U.S. healthcare system. There was a clear need to reassess the recommendations made in the late 90s. Um, Last year, these recommendations were basically removed from the website of the society. And they basically assigned um, the task to a group of experts uh, from you know, different backgrounds to review and update the guidelines. Who are the guidelines written for, Joseph? Are they an administrative guide or are they for a clinician at the bedside making decisions about patients coming into the unit, do you think? Well, any time uh, we discuss the utilisation of limited medical resources, I think we have to consider the economical factors associated with our decisions, the socio-political reality where you actually practicing, the logistical challenges that you have in your specific uh, healthcare system, the staffing, etc. Therefore, the guidelines were developed with a broad audience in mind. Most importantly, the individuals that take the daily decisions, but we also had to consider the administrators, government and non-government agencies, and other healthcare uh, legislative bodies that uh, sometimes look at our literature to take decisions about their uh, policies that are developing. One limitation, however, is that these guidelines may have been um, developed with the U.S. healthcare system in mind and may not be applicable to other areas in, you know, even in America, in Latin America or, or outside America, like Africa, for example. Joseph, how do you go about putting something like this together? It must be an enormous process to bring a group of uh, different people together with different perspectives and create a unifying set of guidelines. What process do you go through to do that? Well, this was a very difficult process because before us there were several task forces that reviewed the literature and they basically tried to put a document together, but uh, they found it very difficult. Fortunately for us, um, we were able to put together a list of topics we thought they were the most important and in a systematic manner, review the literature addressing these topics, selected the appropriate stories, and then evaluated all these material that we have collected 
using a very comprehensive uh, systematic approach. In this particular case, we use the grade system uh, to determine the quality of the evidence and then make recommendations. What is the grade system? That seems to be the standard that's used to develop these guidelines. Now, can you explain a little bit about how that works? Yeah. Well, the grade system is um, basically a method developed in the early 2000s by a group of international experts from around the world. And the whole idea was to try to address the shortcomings of the systems that were already available at the time. GRADE stands for Grading of Recommendations, Assessment, Development, and Evaluation System. And basically, it categorized the quality of the literature in four groups. It goes from very weak, weak, moderate, to high quality and then provides you a framework as well to make recommendations. The recommendations can be strong if the level of the evidence is very high or moderate, and weak if the evidence that you have found is weak or very weak. Now, uh, there is also the option of not making a recommendation. You are not basically obligated to make one. So as you said, there's a separation of the assessment of the evidence and the strength of the recommendation, isn't there? Why is that the case? Yeah, well, as you can imagine, the evidence can be uh, very tricky to evaluate. So basically, the quality is um, considered from many points of view. You know, you look at uh, the inconsistency of the results of the particular study, um, what are the limitations of the particular story? Uh, what is the likelihood of uh, any publication bias or bias within the particular manuscript that you're evaluating, the effect size of the results, and, and many, many other, many other factors. Joseph, one of the first things that you address is the issue of triage or admission criteria to an intensive care unit. Is there evidence that we need assistance? Do we get it wrong very often? Well, the process of evaluating a patient and deciding the patient needs ICU and what type of therapy the patient needs is, is very difficult. And because um, these things happen in a matter of minutes, the decisions that we make sometimes are not very accurate. Some studies have shown that, for example, patients that we thought initially that were too healthy to be admitted to ICU actually did not survive the hospitalizations uh, in a significant number. The opposite is also true. Patients that we thought that were too sick to be admitted to an ICU and were treated in the wards survived the hospitalization. So we use multiple scoring systems. We um, develop you know, expertise evaluating patients in critical conditions. But it is not until about 24 hours after the patient is admitted that we really become much better predicting the outcomes of these patients. So some studies have shown that the physician still remains the one that can make these predictions more accurately, even better than uh, some of the predicting scores available. However, you need uh, some time to, to know the patient, to see how the patient is responding to therapies, etc. It's very, very difficult to make it when you for first time see the patient. I think many people would come to these guidelines expecting to find some concrete variables or criteria that they could use to either 
rule a patient in for needing ICU or ruling them out, but they won't really find that, will they? There, there doesn't appear to be enough evidence to support any particular set of criteria. Is that right? Uh, yeah, you are correct. I think that this is perhaps the most important question here. For someone looking um, for answers or guidance in this document, trying to find their specific patient, they are really not going to find it. Um, this document is basically a comprehensive work developed to address the absence of an up-to-date framework to make these type of decisions. But using this framework and um, all what we discussed throughout the document, physicians and healthcare systems can't further define the subpopulations benefiting the most of the less or, or less from, from our interventions in their specific hospitals and specific populations. However, we make very, very clear throughout the document that there is no consensus or agreement in regards to who should be denied ICU admission. In fact, every day this line is blurrier and blurrier. You know, we can see it in, in several sections we discuss the subject because we have a very extensive uh, a section discussing non-beneficial care. Joseph, are there any predictive factors for the need for ICU? Is there anything that we can say definitively requires intensive care? Well, I think that a patient that is in respiratory failure uh, that requires a high level of um, respiratory support, uh, mechanical ventilation, vasopressor therapy because the patient is in shock with a severe infection, certainly needs to be managed in an environment that has the expertise to deal with all these problems at the same time. Uh, the words could be an environment where we treat these patients in cases that you run out of ICU beds, but uh, the ideal environment will be the intensive care unit with a specialized equipment, uh, individuals trained properly with the proper infection control uh, measures, etc. So mm -hmm. I would say yes, we know that there are specific populations that require intensive care admission. And to that end, Joseph, there's, there's a common belief, I think, out there that there are two key factors that would exclude patients from ICU, that being advanced age and cancer, but the guidelines or the evidence doesn't seem to support that as strongly as some might think. Yeah, I think that some populations that in the past were considered inappropriate for ICU admission uh, have improved their outcomes in general. You can mention, for example, leukemia, you can t talk about all the other hematological malignancies uh, like lymphoma, etc. If you look at the trends over the years, uh, these uh, patient populations have gone from a 50% survival rate at five years from the initiation of therapy to more than 90% survival rates. And there are therapies today that are curative in these particular malignancies. So I think that this is a dynamic, fluid type of decision, and we need to be reassessing our practices every few years. The other source of great demand on the need for ICU beds is, of course, high-risk surgical patients. What sort of factors can predict the need for an ICU bed for those sorts of patients? Yeah, so there are planned and unplanned ICU admissions from the operating room. There are patients that uh, in the immediate postoperative uh, period require vasopressor therapy or ventilation and respiratory support. Those patients usually are admitted to ICU in an elective fashion and supported through a few hours or sometimes days. 
However, there are patients that um, were considered um, not appropriate candidates for ICU initially and then sent to the wards, and later on they are admitted to ICU. And many studies have addressed this type of problem, you know, the unplanned surgical admission to the unit following the surgery. So there are many uh, scores and predictive factors that have been identified in the past. For example, if you look at hip arthroplastic population, if you have certain risk factors, your risk of uh, late admission to ICU goes up to 75%. For example, if a patient is more than 75 years old and had a body mass index more than 35, this patient already falls in a category that most probably uh, three out of four of these patients are going to end in the ICU. So a more a comprehensive approach to manage this particular patient is uh, suggested or indicated. There are other scores like uh, the surgical APGAR, et cetera. I think that this is an area to further research and refine with um, specific recommendations for the surgical population. Now, there's also the concept of the single specialty ICU, such as a neuro ICU or post-cardiothoracic ICU. It's not a new concept, but is there evidence to support that that's any better than an admission to a general ICU? Yes, I think that um, there is a body of um, work that has supported the contention that patients that have neurological problems should be managing neurological ICUs. There are no very high-quality studies, but, you know, there is a cumulative number of studies indicating that these patients have better outcomes within the neurological ICUs. There are, you know, other studies that show that patients that are managed outside the units that are basically appropriate for them, like a surgical patient, for example, instead of being managed in a surgical ICU, um, is managed in the medical ICU, we expect suboptimal results. The other end of the spectrum, of course, is the uh, discharge to the wards. What factors predict good and bad outcomes after a, a discharge to the ward? Is there a best time, for example, that you should discharge a patient from the ICU? Yeah, our, our group actually look at the discharge process and whether discharging a patient during the day versus discharging the patients at night or discharging a patient during the weekdays uh, versus the weekends, etc., um, had any impact in the outcomes of the patients. And there are many studies out there that indicate that discharging the patients late at night or during the weekends, um, you have a higher uh, risk of dying during the hospitalization or increasing the length of a stay or being readmitted to the ICU. However, the quality of these studies uh, was not very high and uh, we couldn't make a strong recommendations regarding this issue. Uh, the process uh, associated with these discharges and the environments where they are discharged to also have important implications to the outcome of the patient. So it's very hard to make a recommendation. I think that, again, throughout the document, we made a lot of recommendations uh, regarding what we needed to study in the future to answer questions that we could not find the results uh, in the literature, you know, in answering the literature. As we've been talking about previously, Joseph, intensive care is increasingly seen as a service provided by the hospital rather than a location within it. What's the role of the rapid response team, do you think, in, in the admission process? 
I think that the idea of a contained unit is uh, losing ground these days. Most of the intensivists um, believe these days that ICU should not have any walls and we need to provide critical care services beyond our ICU environments. Uh, certainly, we can manage in the ICU patients that require, you know, higher level of care, like uh, being on an extracorporeal membrane oxygenator or ventilator with, um, you know, high oxygen and pressures. But we should really uh, develop teams that go outside and address these problems, you know, in the early stages, which in many studies have shown that the earlier you treat the patient, the better outcomes you obtain. So the outreach programs are extremely important these days, particularly when you have, you know, limited resources to admit your patients. If you are a hospital that has only a 3% ICU to hospital bed ratio, you certainly don't have the capacity to admit every single patient that is critically ill in your unit. Therefore, you should have programs that go outside the ICU and prevent these patients from further deterioration, educate the healthcare providers in, in the wards about what are the most appropriate infection control practices, like how to manage central lines in the wards, et cetera, to prevent septic episodes, et cetera. And one of the other factors that seems to highlight the advantage of a, a rapid response team was the finding in the document which suggested that the time to admission correlates with outcomes. What did you find about that? Yeah, well, there are many studies that have shown from, you know, community uh, hospitals that when you delay the admission of a patient that requires intensive care, you will have an increased mortality. So there are studies showing that if the patient stays in the wards for more than four hours in community hospitals, the mortality immediately increases significantly. There are other studies showing that when you under-triage patients, in the emergency center and send them to the ward instead of sending them directly to the ICU. But that patient gets admitted to ICU 24 hours after admission to the hospital or within that period, then you have an increased mortality. There are other studies showing that when the patients that need ICU are delayed the ICU admission for over six hours in the emergency center, they also have an increased mortality. So there is um, plenty in the literature to support you know, a rapid admission once you have decided the patient needs intensive care because you can reduce the mortality doing that. Joseph, you mentioned a couple of times that uh, you see the guidelines as a stimulus for research in this field. What are the key areas that you think need to be fleshed out over the next few years? Well, I think that now that we have the framework, you know, to further develop these strategies, uh, we need to refine our admission process, identify the subpopulations that really benefit. But it's going to be very difficult to say what patients need to be kept outside the ICU. I think that a patient that is critically ill should receive, you know, intensive care therapies and how much of uh, our resources we can pour into one particular patient. It depends on the capabilities of a single institution and um, healthcare system. I think that us as physicians should provide the care that we were trained to provide and um, in an indiscriminate matter, you know, without any consideration of, you know, age, sex or religion, etc. The resources are basically the ones that are going to limit us how far we go.
Joseph, congratulations on the uh, release of the document. It's a great effort to be able to coordinate something that like that that will contribute significantly to our specialty. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. This concludes another edition of the Eye Critical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash eyecriticalcare for more information. For the Eye Critical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Todd Fraser. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Speak with a customer service representative or visit www.sccm.org slash membership for more information. Todd Fraser, MD, is an intensive care and retrieval medicine physician from the Sunshine Coast in Queensland, Australia. He is a staff specialist at Nusa Hospital and is the founder of Osler Technology, a clinical certification and training system. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.